The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Many people go into ministry as a second career. In fact, if you're listening today, that might be your story. I personally have known many people who've gone into ministry from a background in the humanities or business, but I haven't known many who have turned from a long-term career in law enforcement to the ministry of word and sacraments. As you can imagine, this combination brings a unique perspective, both practical and theological, to some of the most pressing questions in the United States currently. Questions not just about policing as such, but also about what policing practices and funding represent, about community, trust, race, justice, and who Americans believe they are and who they want to be. Today, we'll hear from the Right Reverend Jose McLaughlin. He is currently the Bishop of Western North Carolina, and he has worked as a sheriff's deputy in Florida for five years and then for eight and a half years in the U.S. Department of Justice. We're also going to hear from the Reverend Gail Fisher-Stewart, currently the interim rector at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C. She's also the founder of the Center for the Study of Faith in Justice. We'll have a link to that center in the show notes. She also worked for 20 years as a police officer in the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department. Stuart Klim is one of our covenant writers. He's also an assistant professor of moral theology. And he speaks today with Gail and Bishop Jose about their experiences. They discuss how policing has affected their call to ministry now and what well-meaning police protesters and well-meaning police supporters don't always understand about life behind the badge. They also talk about what defunding could really mean for police departments and communities. What you'll quickly hear is that Gail and Bishop Jose have worked in different cultural contexts, and they had vastly different training experiences as officers. But they have seen many of the same things, and they recognize similar threads in policing and American history. And they both believe that the time is ripe for change in law enforcement. They also believe the church should not stay silent. There are many important things to consider here in this conversation, and we hope you enjoy it. And if you already have questions about the issues they're going to discuss, Stuart asks some of the very things you might be thinking. So listen on. Welcome uh, to the Reverend Gail Fisher-Stewart and the Right Reverend Jose McLaughlin. Uh, why don't we start with the basics of a very fundamental question um, or, or really more of an observation that it seems that there's been a lot of conversation and discussion around this idea of defunding the police. Mm-hmm. So I'd be interested to hear both of your thoughts on, on why you think, well, first of all, what you think people mean by that. Uh, and also related to that, why why has this idea gained so much momentum seemingly just within the last few years, really? Um, Gail, if if you wouldn't mind maybe kicking us off on, on that question. Sure, sure. I'm glad to be here. Um, defunding has 
a lot of definitions depending upon who you talk to. And that's one of the problems because some folks think that when you defund the police, there won't be any police around. And that's very frightening to a whole lot of people. Um, But defunding really says, let's look at what the police should be doing because the police do a whole lot of stuff they they should not be doing, don't have the training to do, but because they are 24 seven, you know, 365 days a year, can get there within five minutes. A lot of the social problems have been dumped on them to solve. So defunding as it should mean is that we look at what the police should do and we look at what the police should not be doing and that we transfer those uh, issues, we transfer those problems uh, that they should not be doing to the proper organizations or, or people. And once we do that, as we are making that transfer, we also look at the amount of money that has been allotted to the police to do those things they should not be doing. And once we make the decision to transfer those duties to the proper organizations, we also transfer the money so that they are able to do it. Now, this is not an overnight thing. This is going to take a while because the police have been doing a lot of things they should not be doing for an awful long time. Plus, you have to make sure that those agencies that you now say should be doing them are able to do them and also to perform them 24-7 because just because the police won't be doing them again, you can't tell somebody, well, you know, the police will be there tomorrow when there's an issue right now. So we have to be very, very careful about what we mean about defunding because people are angry, they are hurt, and they're disappointed. They've seen attempts to reform the police over the last, I will say, since I've been in involved in policing the last 50 years and haven't seen a change in policing. And so now they're to the point where let's let's just take the money from the police, give it to wherever it needs to go without thinking of the steps that need to be involved. So we need to have this conversation about exactly what do you mean and how do we do that, understanding that it won't happen overnight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, that's, that's helpful. So uh, just to follow up on that. So it sounds like, first of all, um, there's a lot of misunderstanding on the one hand. So some people, you know, just need to be perhaps informed of what others mean when they are making this claim that the police need to be defunded. But then on the other hand, it sounds like there may be some people who are in favor of it, but they haven't actually thought through what all the steps are. And that's, that's the important work, but it sounds like maybe um, an important question too, that it would be helpful if you could, you could share your thoughts on, are, are there, are there competing notions of defunding the police? Like for those who are advocating for it, is is there a consensus about what that means, or are there competing factions uh, with within that ideal? They're competing factions, and again, it goes back to the to the to the issue that people are angry, they're hurt, they're disappointed, um, and so what just comes off, say, from an emotional standpoint, let's just get this done without taking the time to actually sit down and get everybody together, get all of their definitions of what defunding means in the open, and then say, okay, but let's figure out how we can actually do this. There is no problem transferring duties or tasks that the police should not be doing, but you have to know what you're doing, what it's going to entail, and what happens in the interim. 
because, you know, just because you decide tomorrow that police shouldn't do this doesn't mean it's going to stop tomorrow. There, there's there's going to be a time lag. Uh, and, and also to make sure that whatever agency organization is going to be tasked with doing it, that they're up and running and they are also trained. So um, getting people together to first let them vent, because if you don't let people vent and get their idea out on the table, they won't listen. And, and sometimes we, we, rather than allowing people time to, to vent, we want to just say, well, you're wrong. We can't do that. What will happen if we don't have a police? As opposed to just letting people say what they need to say. And then they're more open to what can actually be done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jose, what are your thoughts on this? Very similar to what uh, Gail just said. Um, there, there are competing um, groups on this. And I think most people, and my own definition um, is when I talk about, and I've talked about defunding the police, isn't getting rid of law enforcement. So it's, 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 and it's not stripping them of all their funding. Um, now, while some organizations um, are indeed calling for that, um, for me, what it means is simply reducing police department budgets um, and re- redistributing those funds towards essential social services. So what Gail was saying, and essentially not only looking at what do police do, but then sort of looking at the budget as well and sort of saying, where else do we need to then move that money to deal with areas such as housing or education, mental health, um, youth services? Um, I, I told somebody the other day that um, you know, when they watch TV and they see police shows, I tell them, I said, it's nothing like that in real life. And I said, the reality is if I told you the number of times I kept getting called the same house because neighbors were yelling at each other because somebody's garbage can was on their property, you know, and the reality is why are we spending all that time dealing with neighborhood disputes or people in communities? For instance, um, I remember vividly one of my first calls was a gentleman who had a, had a, a history of mental health issues. And as a result, it was it was a constant issue for the neighborhood and there were no resources. And so here we are as police officers responding to something we're not trained to other than just trying to calm the situation. But in fact, if we had had the resources to be able to refer that person to get some assistance at no cost, that's what that's what I talk about, um, because right now we're asking police officers to be mental health experts, disciplinarians, parents, um, um, you know, ordinance experts, um, arbitrators, uh, mediators. And, and the reality is, is that when an agency or a city says, well, who do we get to do that? They, they inevitably go to the police in order to make that happen. Um, and I think, I think right now people, I think as they have seen these, these um, brutal um, situations, these brutal killings, um, I think people are finally fed up. And I think it's finally causing people um, to step forward and say, there's just got to be something different and finally paying attention. I will tell you, though, that there's a challenge here in Asheville. Um, there have been 30 police officers that have resigned since June. Um, and it's all been around conversations about defunding and some that are saying there should be an abolishment. So there's got to be some real clarity about what we're talking about here and sort of say, um, where are we putting our money? Where are we putting our investment? but understanding that, that we can't keep going at this path. And it doesn't help when there are voices that are basically saying abolish it altogether, because there are many people in this country that live in neighborhoods where the police are needed more often than not. And, and they're not the first ones to say, get rid of them. Um, so it's a little more complicated. And I think defunding the police sometimes makes an easy tagline when in fact it's a bit more complicated. 
Well, even abolition, you know, because abolition oh, yeah. means get rid of the police. It says, well, let's stop and recognize how the police came into being. Stop that vision. Exactly. And recast the vision into what we need the police to be in the 21st century. So it doesn't mean, neither one means get rid of the police. But when people are upset and when they're emotional, you know, they're not willing to sit down and just figure this out. Let's draw this out. What are you really talking about? And getting police chiefs on board with this discussion, because anytime you talk about defunding or abolition, first thing they they are thinking about, well, I, I won't have as many police officers. Well, maybe if we do this right, you won't really need as many police officers. But again, you just can't uh, stop it tomorrow. And, and all of a sudden, you know, a hundred officers have disappeared. That's not going to work either because you still have the same task you were called to do the day before. You just have fewer officers. And so that doesn't work. So it's getting people to the table, number one, to to get what it is that we really mean by defunding and abolition and getting consensus and bringing folks to the table, number one being, you know, the police chiefs, um, because they're critical to this because they can sell it to their departments, getting union members and, you know, union heads on on board. Uh, and then we can sell it. Uh, but when people are upset, they see what constantly happens. We see years of reform and it doesn't seem like any reform is sticking. Then people get angry and they just want it over. Yeah. So, so one of the issues clearly is um, a matter of, of resources and uh, and giving police officers what they need to do their jobs. But of course, the other very important issue, um, the one that's one of the more controversial points of this whole discussion is the issue of racism, uh, ex- you know, ex- explicitly confronting that problem. And I, I'm curious um, to hear from both of you, because not only are you both uh, clergy, but you also have experience, um, you know, extensive experience in law enforcement. And, and both of you have claimed uh, in various ways, I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, uh, you, you've made a claim along the lines of saying that that racism has been encoded in our modern modern policing system uh, since the beginning. And so, I, I I think our audience would like to hear uh, what what exactly you mean by that. Well, I'll jump in real quick because I think I've been. This is something that people have really hit back at me at uh, law enforcement officers um, that I used to work with or that I know. Um, and, and, and it goes back to my understanding. I mean, I, I grew up in Florida. Um, it's the geographical South. I don't know if it's considered, you know, when you talk about South Florida, I don't know if it's considered the cultural South, but, but my understanding comes from the fact that it, it, you know, the American South, um, it, it relied on slave labor and, you know, white Southerners, um, were in constant fear of slave rebellions. Um, They didn't want, you know, the status quo to be, you know, for the economy to be um, upside down. And so there were patrols. I mean, they were there. It's not it's 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 documented. There were patrols that that, you know, some of the early policing were these patrols that were that were responsible, you know, quite frankly, to control the movements and behaviors of an enslaved population. Um, you know, they, they were to chase down and apprehend and return to their owners, you know, runaway slaves. They were to provide you know, a form of, of organized deterrent um, of slave revolts um, and to maintain a form of discipline um, for slave workers um, who were subject essentially to, you know, summary justice. 
So, I mean, my, my understanding comes from my knowledge and study of it from the South, especially where it has its roots there. Um, and you can't deny that it's there and it's been encoded and embedded. I mean, that, that's different to say, because some people have said that I think that all police officers are racist. I don't say that, but I think we're, I think we deny ourselves or we, I think we're not being honest that the part that Gail talks about, there's got to be some truth telling and, and, you know, just admitting that, that this is encoded, you know, um, is a step that we've got to understand. And so I, I, that's where it comes from for me. It's, it's, it's historically documented. Um, and so I think one of the challenges is anytime you, you raise that issue, um, yeah, it is problematic and it makes people upset and angry, but we also got to confront that that's a lot of where this comes from. Um, and it has been encoded in that system. Mm-hmm. And Jose is right. You know, you had the, the slave patrols in the South because it, it, even Thomas Jefferson said, what, what you have here is a wolf by the ears mm. and the wolf was slavery. You can neither let that wolf go because if you let it go, it'll turn and destroy you. But you couldn't hold on to that wolf forever. Because it would finally get away and it would destroy you. And so you need an an organization or a mechanism to to keep that wolf contained. Um, And and Alan Taylor wrote a book called The Internal Enemy. Slavery created a domestic enemy and domestic enemy were the enslaved. And so whenever you have an enemy, you need some type of force to, to protect yourself from that enemy that you have created. And so in the South, it was the, the, the slave patrol. And we see in documentation with Charleston, uh, you had the slave patrols that morphed into the city guard that morphed into uh, the police, the actual police department. You look at the major police departments in this country, they were all formed before the Civil War, before the Civil War. Now, in the North, it was a little bit different. Because you did, and this is what we learned at Police Academy, right? Uh, right? You had the watches, and the watches were uh, comprised of volunteers. But anybody in the church knows that after a while, volunteers don't work forever, right? So you have to start paying these volunteers to do these patrols. And so you, you, you had the patrols that also looked out for the escaped slaves who got to the North, but also you had... Uh, workers, you had industrialization, and uh, the police were part of the system that worked for the industrialists that kept the workers down who were saying, we're working in un, you know, unsafe situations, you're not paying us. And so uh, the police departments were on sometimes on the actual payroll of, of the robber barons to make sure that the workers did not rebel. And then you were controlling uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe. As long as they were from Western Europe, it was kind of okay. But when immigrants from Eastern Europe started coming, they needed to also be controlled. And so policing is to maintain the status quo. And when you have a, a system, an economic system that is based on the, number one, the enslavement of human beings, anything that upsets that is a problem. And so you need, whether you call it the police, whether you call it sheriff, regardless of what you call it, you need an organization that is going to help you maintain the peace that you have put in place, even though that peace dehumanizes human beings. It also brings to mind, I mean, both of you have touched on how, you know, these, this problem 
has deep roots and not everyone is willing to to confront uh, that past and that history. And a lot of people aren't even really willing to engage the problem as uh, we, we currently are witnessing it. This episode is brought to you by the Living Word Plus Sermon Prep Resource. The Living Word is a new email newsletter from the editors of The Living Church, especially for preachers, teachers, and anyone seeking to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Sunday lectionary readings. Published on Mondays, every issue of The Living Word Plus includes long-form reflections on the week's readings, excerpts from classic texts, relevant sermons, and helpful articles from the archives of The Living Church. And it's only $5 a month. You can sign up for this newsletter at livingchurch.org hour-products and click on The Living Word Plus, or click the link in the show notes. I'm curious to hear what both of you would say to those specifically in a church context. And I'm thinking of all of our, our clergy, uh, not only in our own denomination, but beyond. Uh, we, have, we have a lot of um, clergy uh, listening to our podcast. And I, I, I'd be curious to know what you would say to clergy specifically who are trying to engage this issue in their own congregations. And especially I'm thinking about congregations that are polarized, you know, where you have differing opinions within the, the same church uh, gathering on a Sunday morning, uh, or, or even those who maybe they're not polarized, but maybe they just, you know, across the board would rather not hear their clergy uh, address these kinds of issues, uh, either from the pulpit or really in any church setting. What, what would you say? <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is, let me, let me first say this, that you know, as a bishop during these past eight months with a pandemic and a very divisive um, political season, you know, the number of people who have raised their concerns about what they're hearing being preached from clergy, I, I say to them, I say, you know, it's the same gospel that's always been preached. And maybe the reality is it's that it's those words are kind of rubbing your ears a little more than they used to. It hasn't changed. And, and so I've encouraged my clergy to still be prophetic and bold, because if the church can't speak truth, then who will, right? And, and I think one of the challenges is that, and I get it all the time, and this would have been, you know, through my entire ordained ministry, and I still get it. You know, when you say something that is so opposite of what this world is telling us is important or telling us matters and we're we're really pushing it to say this is who Jesus calls us to be. We've always experienced as clergy people who push back um, because those are tough words to hear and they always run to the oh it's so political. Well yeah the gospel is political. Um, it's not partisan but it's certainly political. And so one of the things I admire about our church and I encourage our clergy is that you know um, we we often get get criticized because they say you know the via media and they say what a cop out. You know, you're living constantly in the middle. But I say, you know what? It's hard to be in the middle and hold tensions on either side. It's not easy to do. We're good at that. We're good at holding tension. We're good at, at, at living in a world with disparate thought. Um, and we're also called, though, however, to bring those tensions into conversation and dialogue. And, and I think about when I was a priest during the time 
um, when General Convention and the issue of Gene Robinson uh, becoming the bishop in New Hampshire, um, in the parish I was in, the pe- some people who were saying, you know, this is this is terrible and we should leave the diocese and we should write a letter to the bishop. And the other half were saying, you know, this is who we're called to be. And one of the things I was an assistant and I, and I was was marveled because the rector engaged the conversation, did not run from it said clearly, no, I'm not going to write the bishop and say that this is what we think because we're not of one mind. And I firmly believe the reason the parish didn't disintegrate and that people didn't leave in mass exodus is because the fact that this rector understood the importance of engaging these difficult conversations among people who don't sit on the same side of them. And thanks be to God, one of the things I love about our church is that we don't all agree. And I, I would miss that, right? But I do think we have this incredible call to speak truth and love. I think we are we are called to have hard conversations. I think we're the ones that can bring these tensions and and not run away from it. And and I think that's our responsibility. I think that's what the church does well. We engage in this tough stuff. Um so so I've just made a point of making sure that I back my clergy up to have these tough conversations. And if they're Somebody complains about them engaging in these conversations. I stand by the clergy and say, well, we should be having these conversations. And so I think we got to dig into it. I think we got to get in the muck and the mire and we got to confront them because if we don't, I just, I want to know who will. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, Daniel Berrigan, who was, um, he was a Roman Catholic clergy and involved in the protests against Vietnam said that if you're going to follow Jesus, you, you have to understand, you need, you need to be comfortable with looking good on wood. There you go. Because that's where you're going to end up. You're going to end up on wood. And so as, as we look at this, um, and I tell folks, I said, you know, just because the Episcopal Church appears to be liberal, do not believe that we are all on the same page. And just like all police aren't racist, but we know that policing has racists, there are racists sitting in our pews because we draw from a racist society. So there are going to be some racists in our pews and not all the white robes are out. <laughs> so, and so we have to, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we, we have to uh, understand that and accept that and know that there is going to be pushback. But it begins with, with truth-telling. And one of the things you know I've been looking at is how is it to to be a, a a clergy of color, and if you're going to be a clergy person of color in the Episcopal Church, most likely you're going to be in a predominantly white uh, uh, parish. How is that when you are the only person of color? So how do you preach truth to power? So, you know, having these types of conversations and helping people understand their context and how do you preach? Um, how do you engage in these conversations knowing that? And, I, and I've had uh, clergy colleagues say in the middle of their sermons, people have gotten up and walked out. Okay. Or, you know, at the end of the service, when they're at the back door, you know, I didn't come to church to hear that kind of stuff. Um, so how do you take that? And what are the resources that the church provides folks who are able, who want to preach, but know there's going to be blowback? What resources does the church provide? Because after a while, 
you'll just kind of step back into the shadows and preach what people want to hear as opposed to preach what people need to hear. So there's a, there's a lot to this being able to preach the truth, preach truth to power, um, and know that someone has your back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As a follow-up to that, do, do either of you see right now from your perspective, do you see signs of, of hope either in the church or outside of it uh, that we're on a, on a positive trajectory on this issue? I see it both in the church and outside that more people are willing to, to speak up and indicate the problems they may be having in, in, in preaching justice, uh, and that there are uh, clergy, colleague groups, and also lay, uh, colleague groups for laity that we've got your back. You know, I, I remember going to one diocese to preach uh, at a clergy conference, and I, as I looked out, I'm going like, wow, what did I get myself into? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so the the four the four black people at that conference said, "We're going to sit right down front with you, so you can look at us." And it was it was helpful knowing knowing number one, I could get on a plane and leave, but it was helpful knowing that when I looked down, I did see people who looked like me, who were open and willing to to listen. Uh, but it's it, it's soul wrenching. It is so wrenching because we talk about the gospel, but we know what happened to Jesus when he preached the gospel, right? Yeah. Well, and I think I think that um, I'm seeing signs of hope, like Gail said, both you know outside the church and in the church. Uh, I do think, um, and I've seen you know in this diocese that there are more people who want to have the discussion. They may be scared about it. They may not necessarily know how to start it. But I'm seeing more people saying we want to figure out a way to engage in it. And I've seen, I haven't seen that as, um, as much as it, it, it just hasn't been like that in the past. It's usually it's had a, 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 a swell point, something's happened, and then it's gone away, and it hasn't. And so um, people are engaging and interested in having that more. Um, and, and I do think, you know, one of the things, and, and Catherine Meeks, um, who both Gail and I have spent plenty of time with, um, she spoke to our convention. I invited her this past weekend to be our convention speaker. And, you know, one of the things she said that resonated with a lot of people is that, you know, she acknowledged, you know, she said, there are days that there are people I have on a list that I would like to send out to space. <laughs> and, um, but she says, but here's the thing when you're willing to acknowledge and look at the other and say, they're a child of God as well. If we can start from that, if we can start that with our fears, with our worries, with, with our thoughts, if we can at least understand that each of us are children of God and look at people that way, um, great things can happen. And so it, it sounds kind of Pollyannish in it, but it's not. I mean, if, if, you know, if we really believe it, if we really believe we're all created in the image of God and we all believe God doesn't create junk, then we at least meet to understand that we are called into community. God wants us into community. And so I think right now more congregations are willing to have these discussions. And I'm seeing more churches having forums and inviting people to come in um, just to share their story. Because at the end of the day, I mean, our story is important. Our narratives are important. It helps to inform who we are. And so I'm seeing a lot more room for that. And, and I've talked to some friends of mine who are still in law enforcement. Um, 
you know, and, and they're glad it's reached this pitch because many of them have struggled and they're tired. Um, and I think one of the things we forget too, and I'm sure Gail knows people in this situation, um, you know, we, we know of people who have had to take down their social media presence because they're getting threats or their family just because they're police officers. They weren't involved in any of these more prominent cases, or you may not know their name, but they're feeling it and they're feeling the fear. And so part of it is, is, and this goes to talk about what the church can do is I think we can be responsible in sort of bringing down the temperature um, and, and creating safe space. But, but, you know, my law enforcement friends still, they want this cancer being ridden. They're tired of it. Um, and they're anxious to talk and they're anxious to talk to people who want to listen and want to engage in these conversations. So I think the environment is, is, is really, um, good for us now for, to bring in people from the community and law enforcement and people in our pews to finally sit down and listen and, and really start to tackle this. And, and I haven't seen this in a while, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. So I'm encouraged by that. Mm-hmm. I'm also encouraged by the young people, although oh, yes. the older I get, young, young is relative now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like the, the young people in the church and outside of the church, they're really, they're, they're willing to make connections across church boundary lines in and out of church, and they are willing to to risk a lot to push the church to be what we have always said it is supposed to be. And so just those, the, the connections that young people have inside the church and outside the church, bringing disparate groups together to have these conversations is, is really hopeful. I, I'd like to, to we've, we've started to kind of go this, uh, this direction anyway, but I'd, I'd like to conclude things on a if I could just ask for um, what you think people can do, I mean, especially, you know, listening to this, this conversation, um, you know, maybe, maybe they're not in the category of people who are uncomfortable uh, talking about this. Maybe it's not so much discomfort with the discussion, but just uh, a discomfort of not feeling like they can do anything about it. What would you say to people in terms of what they can actually do in their own communities, even if they have no, you know, formal connection with law enforcement, what, what can they do to make change in this area? Well, one thing is that they can make a formal connection with law enforcement. Um, you know, police chiefs have, have advisory committees, their community groups. They can get involved so that, you know, uh, in addition to everybody else who's on their, you know, text phone number, uh, the chief and police officers are, and then you start seeing each other as the human beings we really are. So I encourage uh, community members to serve on these boards, get involved with your police departments. Uh, Don't be um, drawn into the culture because sometimes civilians can out police the police once they get involved. Um, But to, to make those connections and then in terms of your church, ask some questions about your parish because we hear about racial reconciliation from the top of the church, but the work is going to be done at the parish level. And so I ask churches within my own diocese, you know, uh, why is your church so white? Let's start there and have a conversation. And that gets them, oh, it is kind of white, isn't it? Uh, and even the black churches, you know, why is your church still black? What keeps you from going out and having these conversations and looking at the communities in which you find yourselves? Because there's a lot of 
there's a lot of angst involved in, in starting these conversations, but you've got to start somewhere. And sometimes it's, it's best to start with yourself. That's wonderful. Uh, and, and the only thing I would add to that too is um, I was thinking a lot these past months about the, the gentleman who was my training officer when I came out of Academy. And I've always said that he was sort of what I would say, you know, if, if you had to look and, you know, and sort of say, what is a cop like, what is a police officer? He would be the person you'd see in the dictionary. Um, and what I admired so much about him is that he was the one from day one who always said, you don't spend all your time riding in a damn car. You get out. He says, you got to know the place you serve. You got to make connections. You got to meet the business owners. You got to meet the people who live in neighborhoods. And I used to be in such awe of him when I would ride with him and he would sit there and say something, oh, you know, you know, Mr. Mrs. So-and-so owned that hardware store there. They've been here for 20 years and they have two children and blah, blah, blah. And he could just recite, you know, all the people in this community. And it was amazing, the connection. And what was fascinating about it is that when you would watch him respond to a call, it, it started on a very different way. It was, it, was, it was people who were connected and knew each other. And it was a police officer coming to help a neighbor. Um, and, and I never forgot that. I never forgot the power of being able to know. And that's one of the things that I think we've got to do a better job. And when we start talking about some of the ways in which law enforcement are, are kind of brought into communities, but, but it's the same thing in the church. It's like, we spend so much time sitting in a pew and being obsessed with our programs and our endowments and look at our beautiful buildings and, and instead not recognizing the people we serve are the people we don't know and the people who aren't there. And so I, I encourage churches here to really know your neighborhood, to really know the people that you're among and listen to their stories and understand their needs. Um, and so it's, it, it's something as simple as just getting to know the very people that you're surrounded by and making an effort to engage. And, and if you don't know law enforcement, there's nothing wrong with approaching a law enforcement officer in your neighborhood or somebody you know and say, hey, you know what, do you mind? Can I, can I ask you a couple questions? Or would you be willing to be part of a conversation that we're having at the church? Um, but it really has to start with knowing the people around you and being willing to step out of your comfort zone and start engaging in conversation. Again, I, I, you know, I love the church and I love when we do all these big programs and we have these wonderful visions and dreams. But then sometimes we sit there and we don't even know the very people we're sitting among. And, and, and so I think one of the things we have to be very um, clear about is, is finding out what are the issues in our neighborhood that, that people are struggling with? Where can the church be part of that? And what are those things, um, as I said in my convention address, what are those things upstream that we're willing to go do something about? And it's got to come from a willingness to want to get out of our comfort zones and to start really engaging the people around us. And so there's nothing wrong with, with you know, in addition to what Gail said, I think you should be involved and listen to when they have these hearings or when they have these open sessions and conversations with chiefs of police that they usually do. Um, I would go on further and just simply start saying, hey, um, can I invite you to come talk? Would you mean, you know, mind being part of a forum? And I have yet to meet a police officer who isn't willing to sit down and have that conversation. I really, because they, they are just as um, concerned with knowing the community as you are about wanting to know what the heck is going on. And so it is relational. 
and it is relational. And once you have a relationship with somebody, it takes a lot of that fear out of the way um, and trust can be built and other wonderful things can start to happen. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's also understanding where people are coming from, because as, as I listen to the bishop and his training officer, I think back on my training officer, nothing like your training officer mm. uh, at all. But because of your experience, it, your experience, you have gotten to where you are today. And my experience, I have gotten to where I am today. And we're both kind of like on the same page, but we took different directions <laughs> to get there. Because my my training officer, uh, when I, you know, I was he was driving the first four hours and then I would drive the last four hours and he was stopping folks and I wasn't really paying attention. But when it was time for me to, to, to drive, I um, stopped the car and he said, why are you stopping that car? I go, cause that's what we do. We stop cars. And he, he's a white officer and I'm black. And he says, we don't stop black uh, white people. Wow. Yeah. So that's my introduction to my training officer. Wow. And I became very aware of race and sexism within the police department based on how I was trained. And so it wasn't like I was looking for something behind every door, but I knew that there were doors where there was something being hidden. Uh, and, and to have these conversations where people can just put their stories out on the table and we let them rest there because they need to tell those stories, hoping that as you and I have gotten to the same place uh, through different means, that they will get to the place we need them to be by different by different means. Hmm. Well, a huge thank you to the Reverend Gail Fisher Stewart and the Reverend Jose McLaughlin. Um, obviously, there's so much more that could be said, but we are very grateful to you for taking time to, to chat with us and to share your experience and your insights. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate hey, this opportunity. Blessings, blessings. And it's always good to, to be with Gail. It is always good. I <laughs> <laughs> love it. Love it. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast so we can continue to make these episodes, you can find a link for giving in the show notes. Look for more coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, on our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. Tune in on December 17th for a Christmas conversation with novelist and Episcopalian H.S. Cross about books, boarding schools, and Anglophile nostalgia. To automatically get the episode, just subscribe to The Living Church Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace.